welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us to this event. This is a Wikistrat webinar on the revival of the Iran nuclear deal, implication for the Gulf security. This is part of a series of webinars that we do at Wikistrat, occasionally focusing on the Middle East and the Gulf. And we're very happy to um, see all of you here with us today. And I'm uh, honored to be joined by a panel of distinguished uh, speakers, focusing each in his own particular area of expertise, either on the Gulf or on Iran itself. Before we start the actual discussion, and I'll present the participants, I, I want to give you guys a heads up that next month, uh, we, could, we at Wikistrat will be running a simulation on the Iran uh, nuclear deal. I don't have the details yet, but stay tuned, and we'll also update all of you via our newsletter. So we should have some more developments uh, related to the issue of topic of this webinar later on. Okay, so to start the webinar itself, so the focus of this discussion will be the implications of the uh, US-Iran talks, the re-engagement with Iran uh, under the Biden administration, and the implications um, of those talks for the Gulf's uh, security, and also obviously the potential for new uh, nuclear agreement with Iran. In this panel, we have a series of guests here, which will join us today. First of all, we have Dr. Raz Simt, who is an Iran researcher and expert, a research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv. He will be uh, moderating this uh, discussion, the panel itself, and also presenting at the outset Iran's perspective on these uh, new uh, developments. We also have here Dr. Christian Ullerson, a long-term member, member of our experts community, an expert in Gulf, and uh, a Baker Institute fellow for the Middle East, who is joining us from Austin, Texas. We have then Dr. Sebastian Sons, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who is a researcher in DGAP's Middle East and North Africa program and an expert in Saudi Arabia, and if I remember correctly, also in German-Saudi relations. We don't also have with us Dr. Anand Shalin, I hope I announced that correctly, and she is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute in DC, focusing on the Gulf states. And finally, we have Dr. Rebecca Molloy from Wikistrat, who is the director for Middle East Community, and she will be moderating the Q&A part of this event following the end of this panel discussion itself. So without further ado, I will pass uh, the stage, so to speak, to Raz, who will uh, give us some kind of overview of these events from uh, Tehran's perspective, and then start the discussion itself. Raz, the floor is yours. So thank you, Adam. Good evening, everyone from, from Israel. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Well, I was asked by Alan to, to give a short introduction concerning the Iranian perspective, which is a little weird for an Israeli to uh, present the Iranian perspective, but I have, I have a sense that perhaps I became too pro-Iranian, so, so Adam thought I could present the Iranian perspective as well, which is good. Let me just say at the beginning that um, as we discuss the revival of the Iran nuclear deal, I have to say that I'm not so sure that a return to the JCPOA is, is going to be that simple. And uh, although it seems that both sides, both the, the Biden administration and the Rouhani uh, government in Iran, seem, it seems that they want to go back to the JCPOA, but I have to say that I'm not uh, confident that the debate going on right now over the so-called sequence between Iran and the United States is just tactical or technical. It seems more serious than that. And to quote just a few hours ago, tweets 
published by Ali Shamkhani, the Secretary of the Iranian uh, Supreme National Security Council. He's, he tweeted it just a few hours ago saying in response to, to a statement given yesterday by the French foreign minister, so Shamkhani said, nothing will happen unless the United States takes effective actions to lift the oppressive sanctions. And he also said the current stalemate is not tactical or domestic, as the French foreign minister said yesterday, but related to the West deceptive strategy. What I think is very clear at this point is that Iran is not going to give up at least two of its positions. One is Iran's readiness to go back to compliance only if the United States is ready to go back to the JCPOA and remove sanctions. So this is the first position, a very clear position taken by Iran. And the second Iranian position is that the JCPOA is not going to be renegotiated. So as uh, Foreign Minister Zarif said, we are not going to, we should not sell uh, one horse again, and we, we are not buying one horse again, meaning we are not going to discuss the JCPOA again, at least until both sides decide to go back to the original JCPOA. But what I think what makes one even more concerned when it comes to the current situation is that even in issues in which one could perhaps expect Iran to show some flexibility, for example, Iran's readiness for a step-by-state step return to the JCPOA or its readiness to, to go back to indirect talks with the United States before sanctions relief, even on those issues, it doesn't seem right now that Iran is going to compromise. We've had some contradictory statements uh, going from Tehran over the last few weeks, but it makes you wonder whether the Iranian position right now is really an issue of tactical negotiation strategy, whether it has to do with political considerations, especially from the Supreme Leader Khamenei, who might not want to go back to the JCPOA before the upcoming elections in June in Iran, so that it won't be attributed to the pro-Rouhani pragmatic camp in Iran, or whether, and I can't really tell, whether it, it is really a strategic decision made by Supreme Leader Khamenei not to go back to the JCPOA, perhaps because of the lack of trust in the United States, especially after Trump's decision to go to withdraw from the, from the JCPOA. And I have to remind you what Khamenei said again and again, it's better to neutralize the sanctions rather to remove the sanctions. So I'm not saying Iran is not going to back, go back to the JCPOA, but I think we, we, we have to take this possibility, this option as, as one possibility. But as our main focus today in our discussion today is the regional issues, I would like to make some several points concerning the Iranian perspective over the regional and perhaps the missiles issue. So the first question is uh, whether Iran is going to, uh, to be ready to go back to what Biden uh, considers to be a stronger and longer JCPOA. And by that, I don't mean the nuclear issue, which uh, I leave aside, but I mean taking the two other issues, which is the long-range missiles and the regional activity of Iran, and, and discuss and address those issues in addition to the nuclear issue. 
Well, uh, I personally believe that it will be very difficult to address other issues in the, in the near future. It will, it will definitely demand Iran to try and overcome this huge wall of distrust with regard to the United States. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that in the future, if both sides return to the JCPOA, Iran is going to be willing to discuss other issues, but probably won't happen in the, in the next future. The second point I would like to say concerns the issue of the, the missiles, which of course is a main major concern both for Israel and for, for the Gulf states in, in the region. Here, uh, again, I, I can't be too optimistic. I think it is very unlikely that Iran is going to be ready to discuss its uh, missile capability. Some would argue that if Iran, that Iran would be ready to discuss its, its missile capability if other regional players, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the UAE, are going to, to be ready to discuss their missiles capability as well. I personally believe it will, it will be even more complicated because Iran really considers its missiles program as the main deterrent against possible aggression. So as I usually say to my Israeli colleagues, if you, if you expect Iran to give up its missile capabilities, you should perhaps expect Israel to give up its air force. So that's the, that's the comparison. So even if Iran agrees to discuss its uh, missiles, I think that the most we should expect Iran to discuss the range of the missiles, uh, which, has not, which is uh, no solution to the regional players in the Middle East. Now, I would like to make five uh, short points before moving to, the, to our experts, considering the, the regional issue. My first point is that I think when it comes to the JCPOA and to the regional Iranian activity, we should uh, perhaps separate between the Iran's regional uh, policy, which has to do with the so-called uh, maximum resistance strategy Iran adopted uh, since summer or spring of 2019, a year after Donald Trump withdrew from the JCPOA. And by that, I mean all those provocative actions carried out in Iran in the Persian Gulf, such as the, the sabotage of uh, oil tankers in the region, the attack, the attack against Saudi Arabia. So this is part of the uh, so-called malign Iranian regional policy, which has certainly linked to the, to the JCPOA. And if the JCPOA is renewed, if, and if both sides go back to the JCPOA, then perhaps there is a possibility to lower the tension in a way which will prevent some of those actions. But I think that most Iranian regional activity has nothing to do or almost nothing to do with the JCPOA. So when you look at what Iran has been doing in Syria or in Iraq or in Yemen or its connections to the Palestinian Islamic Organization, it, it has nothing to do with the JCPOA. It has to do with the well-known traditional strategy of Iran of becoming a regional uh, power or as some would say, trying to uh, increase not just its influence, but perhaps even its hegemony in, in the region. So I think that even if the JCPOA is restored, one should not expect Iran to give up uh, what was before the Islamic Revolution of 1979. My second remark or point is that uh, we should all remember that in Iranian perspective, the United States cannot be part of the regional negotiations. I mean, Iran considers the United States as part of the problem, not as part of the solution. 
So the United States uh, will not be allowed in Iranian position to be part of any kind of regional negotiations. It can be a partner perhaps for nuclear dis uh, discussions, not for regional discussions. The third point uh, considers Israel, and Israel, of course, cannot be part of any kind of regional talks with Iran. Iran does not even recognize the state of Israel. But I would say that it is even more complicated because it's not just that Iran is not willing to discuss anything with Israel, it will probably not going to discuss anything which, which is of Israeli concern. So even if Iran is ready to discuss issues such as Yemen, such as Iraq, which are more relevant to other players in the region, it was certainly not going to negotiate, for example, its support for Hezbollah, or perhaps even its uh, military entrenchment in Syria, or its support for Hamas and the PIJ in, in Gaza. So this is another, uh, I would say, an elephant in the room we have to take into consideration. My fourth point is that even if Iran agrees to have talks over the regional issues, it will probably demand to discuss not just the, the so-called Iranian activity or the Iranian influence in the region, but the influence of other players in the region. So the Iranian position has always been, if you want to discuss Yemen, that's fine with us. If you want, but, but we should discuss not just the Iranian support for the Houthis in, in Yemen, but also what the Saudi Arabians, uh, the Arab, what the Saudis have been doing in Saudi Arabia. If you want to discuss uh, the, the Iranian activity in Iraq, that's fine, but let's discuss what's, what Turkey has been doing in northern Iraq, what the Saudis are, going, uh, are doing in, in, in Iraq. So that might uh, make things more complicated. And my last point, and perhaps this is the most important point, if we take into consideration all those Iranian positions, that raises the question whether it is possible and whether it is advisable to even discuss regional issues as part of the JCPOA or in parallel to, to the JCPOA, is it possible, for example, to force Iran into giving up some of its activities? Much of it is carried out by proxies, not directly by Iran. I have to say I'm quite skeptic about that. It doesn't mean, of course, that there are no ways to, to influence Iranian activities in the region. Israel has been doing that in Syria. There are ways to do that in Iraq, not just by military force, but also by perhaps giving Iraq or Syria alternatives to Iranian economic and political and military influence. But I'm not sure that by discussing those issues diplomatically, this is the best way to the objectives of the regional players in the region. I leave it with that. And now I would like to address our dear uh, experts here in the panel and uh, raise uh, a few questions. And the first question I would like to raise uh, concerns the concerns of the Gulf states regarding the new possible nuclear agreement between the West and Iran and how the Biden administration should address those concerns when re-engaging uh, with Iran. And now, could we start with you? Sure. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I, I appreciate your your kicking us off with your opening comments. So maybe before I turn to that, I just wanted to respond to a couple of the the points you made. So in in general, I, I do agree with your point that it it won't be necessarily simple to return to the JCPOA as we've observed. And I'm sitting here in Washington D.C. My 
sort of my perspective is that it has been fairly disappointing for myself and for other progressive Americans who were really heartened that on the campaign trail, Biden, as well as all of the Democratic candidates, agreed that returning to JCPOA was a core objective. And so remaining hopeful that that will take place, but I agree with you that it's clearly not simple. I also really appreciated your point about trying to think from Iran's perspective about the demand of giving up its missiles, how that would look from an Israeli perspective, for example, or, or from an American perspective. And I also really agreed with your point that the U.S. cannot be part of negotiations, not only that this would be a non-starter for Iran, but as we've observed elsewhere, given that the U.S. remains the global military hegemon, when the U.S. is involved in in essentially anything, um, but but especially in matters, you know, for example, if, if there was going to be efforts to try to negotiate some kind of security arrangement among the regional powers, if the U.S. is involved, it would it would lead it. And I know we have a question later where, where we're going to get into that a little bit more directly about the lack of success in trying to establish some kind of security, regional security architecture for the Middle East. So again, I, I just wanted to, to thank you for those points. So to get to the, the first question about the, the main concerns <clears throat> of the Gulf states regarding a new nuclear agreement um, between the West and Iran. So essentially, you know, the, the current balance of power in the region is, is somewhat artificially inflated in favor of states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. As you mentioned, there is this concern about Iran sort of becoming a regional power. And the fact that Iran at present, their economy is, is about the size of the economy of the American state of New Jersey. This is artificial, that Iran is in fact a, a large populous and resource rich country. And so the fact that it, it continues to be sort of throttled as a result of, of US actions, US American sanctions, Etc. This is an unsustainable sort of balance of power, and so I I would argue this contributes to the instability that we see here. So while I do understand that Gulf states are concerned about the thought that they might lose in in sort of a balance of power that shifts in favor of Iran, I think that they are currently losing as a result of the violence and instability that that comes about from this sort of artificial um, inflation of their power as a result of U.S. military partnerships. So in terms of how the Biden administration should address their concerns, I would argue that this is the wrong question to ask, at least from an American perspective, that for too long American policy has focused on trying to reassure the Gulf states when really the Biden administration should be focused on the interests of the American people. And, you know, for example, we saw that under President Obama, when in, in the midst of sort of efforts to negotiate the JCPOA, there were concerns about needing to reassure Saudi Arabia, for example, that the U.S. was still committed to their security. And so as a result, the Obama administration did not push back when Saudi Arabia invaded Yemen and half a million Yemenis have died as a result of that war and the subsequent instability, structural factors, starvation happening there. So clearly, it doesn't necessarily work very well to try to, to reassure the Gulf states, again, to, to reinforce this sort of artificial sense of their own power, which is primarily the result of the American military presence in the region, as well as massive amounts of, of weapons sales and, and the ongoing transfer of military aid, primarily to Israel, as well as to Egypt, the two largest uh, recipients of military aid, as well as Jordan. 
So I think in the in in the future, moving forward, there are concerns in from American foreign policy experts about this this notion of of Iran. We clearly saw under the Trump administration the overwhelming focus on Iran as an alleged threat, and this in again in in my in my reading this this is also an an artificially inflated threat. It is a multipolar region. The U.S. can trust this that none of the powers in the region are going to be able to sort of assert overwhelming military hegemony. And, and that moving forward, just, just to reiterate here, I, I very much agree that Biden shouldn't take the, take the perspective of trying to reassure the Gulf states. I think what we, where we tend to see a reduction of tensions is when the U.S. has a smaller presence in the region or, for example, after the attacks on the Abqaiq oil facility in, in Saudi Arabia, when the Trump administration's response was quite muted, that was when we saw Saudi officials or, or sort of back-channel Saudi outreach to Iran to try to tone down tensions, whereas once the, for example, after the killing of Soleimani, when the Saudis were reassured that the U.S. was going to potentially fight Iran on their behalf, then then we started to see a lot more of this sort of aggressive rhetoric. So, just just to reiterate your point that I think Biden needs to to take a back seat here and and allow the regional countries to work this out for themselves. I'll stop there. But just as a, as a short follow-up, do, do you think that the United States should uh, reduce even further its, its uh, military presence in Syria and Iraq as part yeah. of this region? Absolutely. I mean, the, the justification for being in Syria was to combat ISIS, and ISIS has been militarily defeated, if not ideologically, but we, you know, the United States cannot maintain a military presence in every part of the world where people are ideologically opposed to it. In fact, I think we would find less ideological opposition to the United States if the U.S. had a much smaller military presence in general. So the U.S. needs to be out of Syria in a responsible way, not the way that Trump sort of announced in October of 2019 that he would simply pull out and they decided he wasn't going to do that. You know, it needs to be done in in a way that that is responsible. But again, it shouldn't be based on necessarily like like stability milestones, because then you have actors in the region who would be incentivized to to exacerbate instability in order to prevent the U.S. leaving. So I, I absolutely agree that the U.S. needs to be getting needs to get out of Iraq and Syria and to have a much smaller military presence in the region in general. Thank you. And Sebastian, what is your take on the concerns of the regional of the Gulf states and what Biden should or shouldn't do with concern to, to those concerns? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really much looking forward to the discussion. And I'm, I'm very sorry because I had some technical difficulties here in, in the not very well digitalized heart of Germany. So therefore, I was not able to, to uh, listen to everything what Anel said. So hopefully, I will not repeat uh, herself. And I'm afraid I, we can't hear you right now. Could you try again, perhaps to improve your, your link? Or perhaps you could just uh, turn off your camera. It might, it might improve your sound. Uh, Sebastian, if you turn off the video, then sometimes the audio quality improves. So you could maybe try that. Sebastian? Well, perhaps in the meantime, we yeah. could give it to uh, Christian. Hopefully your, your link is, uh, is better. Sorry for that. Could you address my question, please? Okay, thank you very much for the invitation. I hope you can all hear me. 
Yeah. Okay. In terms of oh, good. Okay. In terms of the the Gulf states, and building on what Anel was saying, I think we also should distinguish between or among the Gulf states as well. I mean, there's no Gulf consensus in as much as you have the blocks, one Saudi, UAE, Bahrain to some extent, and the other, again, not a formal block per se, but Qatar, Kuwait, and Oman, which put more emphasis on diplomatic outreach and engagement. Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, for example, see Iran as much of a threat to domestic security because of their own Shia communities in ways that the other countries in the Gulf don't necessarily do. And we also saw quite a neat split among the Gulf states over Biden's election, where, broadly speaking, reactions in uh, Kuwait, Qatar, and Oman were favorable, uh, certainly more so than responses initially in Riyadh, Abu Dhabi, and Bahrain. So there's no real Gulf consensus on this. I um, think where, it's in, um, where it's tremendously under pressure, not only when it comes to the security situation, but also when it comes to the relations with Joe Biden. I don't think I have to go into detail here. We all know that the situation with the US is under strain and that, that the pressure that is exerted on the Saudi leadership with regards to Yemen, with regards to the human rights record, with regards to the release of the Khashoggi report is intensifying. And of course, regional stability or regional instability also um, have its negative implications for, for the Saudi business role model. So Saudi Arabia is in dire need of foreign investment. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, wants to foster a socioeconomic transformation in terms of, of tourism, in, in terms of entertainment, in terms of creating a new hub, of, of a new logistical hub in the region. And without regional stability, I'm afraid you came back and then went off again. Is there something we can do? I, I uh, suggest we'll continue with, with Christian's comment. I'm sorry for that, Christian. Okay, well, I was going to then add that the Biden administration does to some extent have a dilemma in the sense that if it does include Gulf states in negotiations for whatever comes next, not only is that separate from the JCPOA, which deliberately set aside regional issues so that they could get to a nuclear agreement on a more narrowly focused set of issues, but then who, do you, who among the Gulf states do you include? And there's a risk then that by including, say, the Saudis or the Emiratis, you then create discord among the other Gulf states who also perhaps would like a seat at the table. So then do you include the Gulf Corporation Council, the GCC, which at least now is led by a Kuwaiti Secretary General, who is more of a balancing actor than what we saw in the 2017 to January 2021 period, when the GCC itself was hopelessly split between these two camps. So I think there have to be quite careful considerations as to who are included if any further engagement is, is decided to include any Gulf states in negotiations while agreeing, of course, with Anel about some of the broader points of kind of U.S. Gulf, uh, Gulf relationships. But I mean, in terms of including some states, not others, this has the potential to exacerbate some of the regional dynamics. And of course, Kuwait and Qatar and Oman have 
at least the potential to be facilitators of back channel dialogues. And I think that's already happening to some extent with all three countries offering at least to offering their services to the to the US and to Iran. So I guess engaging in different ways is an option um, and not necessarily having a seat at the table, but that again would then create problems in Saudi Arabia and in Abu Dhabi, which would demand a seat at the table, probably Israel as well. So it's no again, there's no easy, easy answer here. Thank you. And I see Sebastian is, is back. So I, I'm, I'm afraid that we, we missed some of your answer. Can, can, can you hear me, Sebastian? Yes, I can hear it. I'm, I'm, really, I, I'm really sorry for that. It's, yeah, as you might know, Germany, when it comes to digitalization, is, is maybe not the most advanced uh, country in the world. So I'm really sorry for that. I don't know uh, what part you have missed. And, and maybe we can also continue. Or uh, what do you suggest? You, you can always blame the Iranians, but let's let, let's uh, move to the to the next uh, to the next question, please. And what are the implications, in your view, of a new nuclear agreement with Iran for regional stability, especially for the Gulf states? May I suggest we start with 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 Sebastian this time, so to make sure we'll get your response. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Fine. I was not aware whom you addressed. Yes, of course. So, so when it comes when it comes to the Gulf states, when it comes specifically uh, to, to to Saudi Arabia, uh, a new nuclear agreement with Iran is is on the one hand big challenge, as I've tried to explain before, but it's also a chance because Saudi Arabia is in is in a very uh, sensitive situation at the moment uh, due to the fact that its national security is under threat. When we take into consideration that the Houthis are launching missile and drone attacks on Saudi soil on almost a daily level. They are targeting sensitive I'm afraid we lost you again. Could you, could you hear me, Sebastian? Again, if, if you want, perhaps you should try to just to, to give up the camera and at least we can hear you perhaps. Well, I'm, I'm afraid we'll have to go to, to, to NL with this question, or well, I'm not afraid to. <laughs> okay, yeah. could, could you address this question as well? Yes. And if, if Sebastian comes back in, maybe I'll, I'll try to tell him to turn off his camera and see if that helps. Okay, oh, okay. Maybe he heard that. <laughs> yes. So in terms of the, the implications of a new nuclear agreement with Iran for regional stability, specifically for the Gulf states, it does confuse me somewhat why states like Saudi Arabia and Israel seem more interested in Iran remaining isolated than in preventing it from acquiring a nuclear weapon. If these countries were so terrified of the threat posed by Iran, they should be demanding that the U.S. return to the nuclear deal immediately so then Iran would, according to its own statements, would, would then come back into compliance with the terms of the deal. So it, it seems fairly clear that, that states like Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the UAE, as well as Bahrain and Egypt, the, the sort of cohort, are, are more interested in 
in a nuclear-armed Iran than they are in having an Iran that, that is more integrated into the regional economy, the, the global economy, and therefore would, would threaten them. And so I, I can understand that from their perspective, they, they see a more integrated Iran as, as threatening their, their sort of influence in the region. But, but in general, I, I do think that the the whole world would be better off with fewer nuclear armed powers i mean these these states already spend inordinate amounts of their own budgets on 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 the military on buying weapons that are often unnecessary fancy planes that that they in the case of saudi arabia can't even necessarily fly themselves without the help of the united states and and we you know all of these countries particularly the gulf states are are in an untenable economic position they particularly states like Saudi Arabia that have a large population, frustrated by lack of opportunity. Clearly, we've seen some, <clears throat> some efforts, excuse me, from Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in trying to diversify the Saudi economy. And I think these efforts are, are commendable and, and should certainly be encouraged by the United States to try to move away from this oil-dependent economy and, and also to hopefully move away from and, and this inordinate expenditure on the military. However, I think as long as these states remain autocratic, we are likely to see them continue to invest in their security apparatuses, partly as a, as a means of protecting themselves from their own populations. So again, some of this just goes back to the fact that the, the regional dynamics are, are sort of artificially stable as a result of autocracy and American military hegemony. But in, an additional point I would make here is is that although to this point, you know, several from from the the second Bush administration to the Obama administration through to a certain extent the Trump administration, and now under the Biden administration, we have seen U.S. foreign policy establishment emphasize the need to to get out of the Middle East, to end the endless wars there, and to focus more on on Asia, and on this perceived threat from China. And, and yet, you know, our security partners in the region are, are, are averse to that. They want to see the United States maintain a large military presence on the ground and to continue to support them. And so essentially the, the United States, this will happen eventually. It's, it's been a long, slow process. But I, I do think, I mean, somewhat unfortunately, as we see the US embracing more and more of this language of a so-called Cold War with China, I think is very problematic for its own reasons, you know, in terms of emphasizing the need for more military buildup, the need to combat China, as opposed to, you know, the fact that we're all working from, or almost all of us are working from home offices as a result of a global pandemic that the world has been unable to, to effectively combat up to this point, a year in, that clearly, as well as, you know, global problems like climate change, the, the undue expenditure of, of a nation's resources on its military, which is something that the United States is, is particularly guilty of as well, this is simply not going to be sustainable as we move towards, towards a world of global problems where an, a nation's individual military capacity is, is going to be useless in the face of, of these global problems. So just, just to go back to, to the, the <laughs> I've zoomed way out. So to get back to the more narrow question of, of the implications of a nuclear agreement for regional stability, I, I feel that it would be good for regional stability <clears throat> that these countries would not then feel that they necessarily have to scramble to, act, to acquire nuclear weapons in order to, to counterbalance a perceived threat from Iran. I do recognize that there are arguments that 
that these countries will sort of continue to feel that that Iran is a threat. And I think that the best way of combating that is for the U.S. to have a much smaller presence in the region so that these countries will have to base their own level of aggressiveness on their own military capacity and their appetite for war. Thank you, Anel. Let's have another try with Sebastian. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Again, sorry. That's fine. So just just your take on, on either either one of the first questions because we missed most of what we tried of what you tried to say. Okay, now I, I try to make it very brief because I don't know what you have heard and what 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 you don't have heard. So with regards uh, to, to Saudi Arabia, I think regional stability is, is one of, of its key priority. So if the nuclear agreement could, could serve regional stability, then of course it's in the interest of Saudi Arabia. But of course if there are some preconditions, as I've outlined before, so that it needs to be that of course the, the nuclear deal needs to be or needs to address also the regional ambitions, the regional influence of Iran, its ballistic missile program, the the control or the influence on the Houthis, etc. And if the, this is not to if this is not about to happen, then of course Saudi Arabia um, has to adapt to to the situation, which is at the moment very risky. It's uh, it's concerning, and and therefore Saudi Arabia is following a more pragmatic approach, is, is trying to make concessions towards the Biden administration on the domestic, on an international level as we have seen with the Alula declaration, as we have seen also with the release of, of some human rights activists in the last couple of weeks, as we have also seen with regards to some reforms in the Kafala system, uh, system just announced today. And, and of course, this is, this is uh, one approach in order to reconcile again with Biden, but it is also the, the, uh, the approval to, or it's, it's, the, it's the attempt to to present itself as a reliable, as a pragmatic, and as also as a constructive partner in the region. And this image was, of course, or is very much shattered due to the Khashoggi affair, due to the engagement in Yemen, etc. So in this regard, Saudi Arabia needs to do to some extent a turnaround and regional stability is, is one aspect the Saudi, the Saudi leadership really needs in order to realize and, and, and follow its domestic socioeconomic transformation. So without regional stability, there is, there is no chance that Vision 2030 can be uh, successful. And this is, of course, also one element uh, we need to take into consideration. And for, for the Saudi leadership, specifically for Mohammed bin Salman, the domestic audience is, is top priority. So the young people within the, within the kingdom that are at the moment suffering from high um, youth unemployment, that are suffering from, from insecurity, that are suffering also from the uh, ramifications of COVID-19. These are specifically topics that need to be addressed. And without regional stability, uh, such programs cannot be overcome. And Vision 2030 cannot achieve what it needs to be achieved. And this could, at the end, also accelerate social frustration. It could also, it could also undermine the, the still existing image of Mohammed bin Salman within its country as a reformer, as a modernizer, as someone who can make a difference when it comes to when it comes to promoting the youth and engaging the youth. So therefore, and I think that is what what, what also uh, is, is discussed uh, inside Saudi Arabia. Therefore, they they need to they need to look uh, or they need to let's say they need to reduce their anti-Iranian rhetoric. They need to tr they need to try finding 
finding a different way how to approach the common the common enemy Iran in the future and and spe specifically when it comes to Yemen here is a need at least to to have a, to have kind of a face saving solution to engage directly or indirectly uh, with with Iran and and I think those uh, considerations are at the moment discussed in Saudi Arabia and uh, therefore there is a kind of a I would say kind of wind of change when it comes to the to the regional behavior of Saudi Arabia. We have to wait and see if this is a long lasting, if this is not only tactical and if this um, uh, holds true um, in the foreseeable future. Thank you, Sebastian. And I would like to move to another issue, which is the possibility of forming the so-called Arab NATO following the possibility of returning to the JCPOA. Christian, what, what is your take on this possibility? Well, first of all, the Middle East Strategic Alliance was never considered to be an Arab NATO. Where that kind of misnomer developed was that the Emiratis, especially, to some extent the Saudis, but mainly the UAE were trying to spin it as such, to try and portray it as something more than it actually was, and to try and imply that there was a collective security underpinning framework like with NATO Article 5, and that was never envisaged, partly because the Trump administration at least had the awareness to acknowledge that there was no consensus among the six PCC states on some of these major regional issues. And so there would never have been a, a sort of agreement to move to a more collective security framework. That being said, the Middle East Strategic Alliance was put together to try and formalize some of the interoperability issues that successive US administrations from George W. Bush onwards had always been trying to push their Gulf partners to do. I think there was frustration that every Gulf partner was doing its own thing in terms of security and defense, making its own arrangements, buying systems that weren't compatible with each other, often competing with each other, in a sort of regional build-up and arms race, as, as Amel has indicated. And so there was a push to at least try and formalize some of the interoperability by creating this MESA framework. That doesn't seem to have survived the transition from Trump to Biden. To be honest, I think it was already dead before at least by the end of 2019, early 2020, before the pandemic hit, there were meetings in Washington, there were meetings of regional leaders, or at least security and defense leaders. But again, that lack of consensus from the beginning, I think, meant that they could only go so far. So I don't see that an Arab NATO is likely. I think with the Biden administration, they will try to continue to push the Gulf states to speak with more of one voice. But I still think that at least among the GCC states themselves, without the US being as heavily engaged in trying to push in kind of Mesa framework as the Trump administration was, they probably won't do it on by themselves. I mean, they do already have the GCC as the sort of regional framework. And to be quite honest, for 40 years, they've been unable to agree on big ticket issues, um, on, especially on regional and foreign policy, such as Iran, partly because they don't even share a common perception as to what kind of threat Iran actually poses.
And so for those reasons alone, I don't necessarily see there will be a, a push to form an Arab NATO among the Gulf states. I would just add also that in 2015, the initial response of the Saudis and Emiratis to the negotiations for the JCPOA was to go into Yemen. The intervention in Yemen began in March 2015, the same week that um, P5 plus one negotiators were in Switzerland trying to finalize the JCPOA. They initially had a deadline of March 31st, 2015, five days after the Yemen war began. That deadline was then pushed back to the middle of July 2015, just to give final time, a bit more time to finalize the agreement. So in 2015, we saw a very clear statement from the Saudis and the Emiratis that they were effectively telling the US administration, the Obama administration, that we don't feel you can divorce the, the nuclear agreement from Iran's wider regional kind of ambitions as we see it from, from, Riyadh, and Saudi, from Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. I don't necessarily think that will happen this time around, just because 2021 is not 2015. 2021 is six years into the war in Yemen, where the Saudis and the UAE initially went in thinking they would have a quick and decisive military intervention. They're now bogged down. They realize the limitations of their power, as Mel has said in previous interventions. The 2019 attacks on Abqaiq and al Qudais in Saudi Arabia shocked the UAE and Saudi Arabia into kind of realizing that the US wouldn't always be there to protect them come what may. And so when Qasem Soleimani was assassinated in January 2020, you know, the initial response from Abu Dhabi and Riyadh was to try and de-escalate because they felt they were on their own more than they had thought maybe in 2015. So for that reason alone, I think the response, should there be any new agreement with Iran, I think the response from Abu Dhabi and Riyadh will likely be quite different from, from that of 2015 when their response was to say, okay, fine, you make your agreement, we'll do it, we'll go it alone in Yemen, and we'll almost dare you to support us. You can either side with Iran with the agreement or side with us in supporting our military adventure into Yemen. Now that happened, and that has been a disaster. So for that reason alone, I think the response will be quite different this time. Thank you. That was that was interesting. Sebastian, could I uh, take the same question back to you the, concerning the Arab NATO? But perhaps uh, you could also address the issue, not just the possibility of the so-called Arab NATO, but also a potential greater cooperation between the Gulf states and Israel, especially for the Abraham Accords in case of uh, return to the JCPOA. Yeah, sure. And I think that this is one, one relevant um, topic that needs to be discussed, that needs to be taken into consideration. And, and, and for sure, as Christian said, I also agree that there might be a different approach, a different reaction to a new JCPOA because Saudi Arabia, more than the UAE, has learned its lesson, hopefully, with, when it comes to military interventions such as in Yemen, because it is disastrous and they need to they need to get out of Yemen and, and they have, it was a huge miscalculation from the Saudi perspective to have a quick win there in 2015. With regards to the, the regional cooperation, and I don't want to call it Arab-NATO because I, I, I also don't think that this will happen, I think we have to take two perspectives into consideration. The first one is we have, we have regional players such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE and, and Israel that 
that have, of course, a common understanding about Iran, that Iran is to some extent an existential threat and needs to be counterbalanced, uh, at least on the, on the one hand. And this, and this demands will be addressed also to the Biden administration. And if this, if there, if this concern is not, is not accepted or is not uh, taken seriously, then, of course, they need to uh, align with, with each other much more. So we have, seen the, we have seen the Abraham Accords. We have seen that UAE and Israel are closely cooperating on different fields. And it's, it's, it's for sure that this, is a, that this is also an alliance against Iran and to uh, close the ranks within the region. Saudi Arabia plays, has to play a slightly different role here. So there is, of course, no normalization with Israel. And um, in the, I would say in, in, the, in the short term, in the midterm, that is not at sight, at least under, under the, the current King Salman. But not only now, but, but even years before, there have been an ongoing security uh, cooperation and exchange with Israel, I would also imagine that this this is likely to intensify in order to to address the threat the threat of of Iran much further and also to from a Saudi perspective to diversify um, its security partnerships. So as Christian said, the the um, attacks on, on the oil facilities in 2019 was an eye opener. It was it was a shock for Saudi Arabia that the U.S. is not on their side at all costs. So therefore, Israel is a, is a neutral partner when it comes to military and security cooperation. We also see, see other approaches with Russia, uh, with, with China. No, there, there have been a joint exercises with Greece, for instance. So military diversification is, is part, of, part of the Saudi strategy at the moment. And there is, of course, also the, the tendency to localize military, the military industry and to, to be a little bit more independent from the U.S. in this regard. But the GCC is not a monolithic block, and where we have Bahrain, UAE, and Saudi on the one hand, there is of course, there are of course with Qatar, with Oman, with Kuwait actors that that traditionally show show a much more pragmatic approach uh, towards Iran, and that are more interested to to have a, to to have them um, to follow a balancing act uh, between between one camp and the other. So therefore, the although there there was the Al Ula agreement uh, officially, they have solved the issues, but the the remaining uh, obstacles they are still there and and they have not been tackled. And this is also true when it comes to how how to deal with Iran in general. So so therefore, a, a lot more needs to be done in order to build trust within the GCC, not only with, with regards to Iran but also with regards to to the Muslim Brotherhood, to to political Islam, to other to other obstacles that that has led uh, to the to the Gulf Rift four years ago. So and therefore, I think at the moment it's for Saudi Arabia and UAE maybe much more likely to to more aligns uh, on the security level with Israel than to find a common ground on how to deal with Iran with the, with with Qatar, for instance. Thank you, Sebastian. And now, what is your take? Uh, do, do you think there is a sense of perhaps concern in, in DC over the possibility of perhaps greater cooperation within between the Gulf states and perhaps between the Gulf states and Israel against Iran in case of uh, US return to the JCPOA? I, I think we probably will see that. We had, I, I don't know if it's been confirmed, but at the end of February, there was an announcement of a, a possible defense alliance that was being discussed between Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain, which I think goes back to, to Christian's point and Sebastian's point about the fact that the, you know, the Gulf 
as, as such is not a monolithic block that you do tend to see Saudi Arabia and the UAE often working in partnership with each other and sort of bringing, bringing Bahrain along. Whereas Oman, Kuwait, and Qatar tend to be more, more open to interaction or, or at least less aggressive uh, towards Iran. And interestingly, we also, although it doesn't get talked about as much, we tend to see a somewhat more conciliatory attitude towards Iran from Dubai, not as much from Abu Dhabi necessarily, but in general, you know, Dubai is interested in, in business partnership. They're, you know, they know that war is, and conflict is, is really not in, in the interest of a vibrant sort of business climate that they have worked hard to cultivate. And so moving forward, I do think it will be interesting to, to not only look at diversity of opinion sort of between the different Gulf states, but also within the leadership of the UAE, where obviously we have Mohammed bin Zayed, the, the crown prince and de facto leader, is, is, is at the moment leading much of Emirati policy, but we might increasingly see more resistance, especially from the leaders of Dubai, who, who um, stand to lose as a result of, of greater conflict that could could you know further hurt Dubai's economy, which has been quite damaged by COVID. So so again, just moving forward, I, I also want to push back against the notion of a so-called Arab NATO because that does imply, as as Christian said, sort of a, a mutual defense agreement that the U.S. would be obligated to to intervene militarily to defend these Arab partners. I, I do think we we may see, as I said, some some kind of defense arrangement with Israel and and the the three sort of more anti-Iran Gulf countries. And your question was about whether in DC there's concern about that. I mean, I, I do think there's concern about the possibility of escalation. And in particular, this goes back to my point about how the US and these countries should be primarily interested in Iran not detaining a nuclear weapon. So then there would be less concern about uh, the, a nuclear arms race in the region, which, which could quickly get out of hand. And but but also just to reiterate my point that when these when the sort of US security partners feel that the US is going to back them up, then they have fewer compunctions about engaging in this more aggressive stance towards Iran. Whereas if the US uh, were less involved, the, then there really is a question of, you know, do we want to fight this war ourselves with our own resources and our own citizenry? And so for that reason, I think even if we did see greater security partnership among those four states, again, Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Bahrain, that as long as the U.S. wasn't sort of backing them up and or, or sort of giving them the impression that it, it would back them up militarily if they were to go after Iran, I do think that we, we would not necessarily see them behaving so aggressively. I do think that they, these countries are, 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 are not interested in, in fighting a war. As, as was mentioned by Sebastian, the Saudis hopefully have learned their lesson in terms of the reality of, of the costs of the war in Yemen, not only for, for sort of Saudi coffers, but just in terms of their, their own security. Now, you know, they went into the war thinking that this would, would or, or my understanding is, you know, Mohammed bin Salman went in thinking it would be easy. And, and now six years later is dealing with a, a much greater security threat and also a much greater presence of Iran in Yemen, which was originally the, the concern or the ostensible concern motivating that intervention. So, so clearly, I hope that the takeaway has been that, that military intervention can often lead to, to sort of much worse outcomes. And one final point just to make here, I, I think partly just thinking about Saudi aggression in the past several years occurred in the context of this sort of unquestioned support from the Trump administration for the Saudis. You know, we clearly saw 
buddy-buddy relations, Saudi Arabia and Israel being the, two, the first two countries that Trump visited. And following that, we, we saw the, the blockade of Qatar. Christian has written a whole book on this and is much more of an expert if we want to get into that. But just in general, my hope is that Mohammed bin Salman, as Sebastian mentioned, has, has articulated this very ambitious program for, for Saudi Arabia. And I, I do hope that now that he no longer feels that he has sort of the, the American military juggernaut backing him up, that perhaps he has learned that moving forward, he has staked his entire reputation on, on providing better economic outcomes for the, the young Saudi population. And if he fails at that, he has assumed full responsibility here. So I do hope that moving forward, we may at least have Mohammed bin Salman adopting perhaps a, a somewhat more circumspect approach to at least military engagement. Thank you, Anna. Well, I think we, I see we are running out of time, but please allow me a, a last short round of addressing one, one short answer, one short question. And that's perhaps the more sensitive issue of uh, whether the new circumstances might push uh, Saudi Arabia, especially Saudi Arabia, to develop its own nuclear weapon. But please allow yourself to use this last uh, round of, of, uh, of questions if you want to address other issues as well before we, we, we move to the, to the question from the audience. So Christian, could you, could you start please? Yeah, I think it would be foolhardy in the extreme for the Saudi leadership to try to develop a nuclear weapons program, given the, well, given its positioning, especially in the US under the current administration, and for the next four years, I think that would encounter political opposition from all sides in the US. It would undermine the Saudis, I think, uh, regional standing to some extent. It would certainly not be something I would recommend the Saudi leadership would do. And I think the Saudis have in the past made it quite not clear, but they've at least given indications that if they need what they feel the need to develop a nuclear weapon, they have arrangements with other states uh, in the past, Pakistan and the AQ Khan network have been often mentioned. That said, we are seeing a greater push to localize defense industry production in Saudi Arabia, as we've had in the UAE, as increasingly was happening in Qatar and also in Qatar relationship with Turkey as well. So we are seeing much more emphasis on localization. But I think we will see a defense arms industry emerging in the Gulf to a greater extent than we have in the past. I recall Mohammed bin Salman saying in 2018 that if Iran went for a nuclear weapon, Saudi Arabia would do the same. And I think that's their position. And I think until there's incontrovertible evidence that Iran is trying to develop a nuclear weapons program, I think you know, the Saudis will try and just hedge their bets and to try to at least keep open the option of procuring something somewhere down the line. I just think for the political risk of the Saudis doing it themselves would be too great, at least while the current administration is in office. Thank you, Christian. Sebastian, could you, uh, could you take this one? Yeah, 
Thank you. Yes, I agree with Christian that in the, in the next couple of years, if Saudi Arabia would really like to follow up on the nuclear weapon, it would be a catastrophe, catastrophe for their international standing, not only in the US, but also with regards to Europe. And I think that Mohammed bin Salman is, is taking this into consideration, although he has mentioned that if Iran would have a nuclear weapon, Saudi Arabia would follow lead. I think that has more to do with, with domestic, with a nationalistic approach in order to also show and to present himself uh, at that time as a, as a strong leader, as someone who is, who is not willing to, to accept uh, that, that there is a regional actor that is challenging national security of Saudi Arabia, etc. And, and also to show that Mohammed bin Salman is more capable, more, more assertive than, than, for instance, former kings such as, as, as King Abdullah. So in this regard, I think it's part of the rhetoric of, of Saudi Arabia. They will, they will continue localizing their uh, military businesses. But when it comes to nuclear capacities, I'm not really sure if, if Pakistan can in the future, will in the future really play um, the role as a nuclear umbrella or nuclear protector, which is also based on some bilateral tensions that have, been, that have increased in, in, in recent months between Saudi Arabia and Imran Khan in, in, in Pakistan for, for several reasons. So therefore, Pakistan has a, has a much more contested, and, and that could also play out, and that could also, that could also be included into the assessment of Saudi Arabia with whom they can they can really work with so at the moment when it comes to security providers besides the UAE or, or partners in the Gulf it's it's Israel and 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 that's that's even more more likely that that, that we will be intensified in the future. For instance, there is like a mutual kind of a protection of Pakistan. Just to just to maybe add on on, on what Christian said. Regarding... And now, last but not least. Thank you. So the the way the question was phrased, at least that when I received it, was how will nuclear talks with Iran impact the Gulf states' defense strategies? Will such talks push Saudi Arabia to develop its own nuclear weapon? Which to me seems a little bit odd that you know if if Iran rejoins the nuclear deal and and reduces its its nuclear capacity why that would push Saudi Arabia to develop a nuclear weapon i think the concern at the moment is that the us fails to rejoin the jcpoa or fails to to renegotiate a nuclear agreement with iran and iran acquires nuclear technology at which point although i i, I do think there there would potentially be reputational costs but i you know i think there would be a, a certain amount of international understanding that saudi arabia for example would then feel that it needed to to acquire nuclear capacity so so in general i, I do although i had made the point earlier that you know actors like saudi arabia have demonstrated that they're more interested in keeping iran isolated than necessarily preventing it from gaining access to a nuclear weapon which I region. And so again, I, I think in general, it is very much in the interest of the whole region to prevent further nucle nuclearization. That being said, I do think one possible 
way that the, the Biden administration could perhaps consider approaching this would be to support the development of nuclear power, especially for the purpose of water desalinization. The region in general is, is already experiencing heightened temperature increases due to climate change and moving forward, there are concerns that large parts of the region will no longer be habitable. And so while the, the region is admirably investing in renewable resources, given their vast access to, to sort of the, the possibility of, of solar energy as well as wind energy, the, the current trajectory of, of their energy usage would perhaps be they would, they would perhaps be incentivized to have access to, to sort of non-military nuclear energy capacity, and that this could potentially be something that the U.S. could offer to Saudi Arabia as, as sort of perhaps an incentive to, to dissuade them from trying to acquire a nuclear weapon, but to still address their, their general energy needs. But again, just in general, I, I think it's in, in the entire region's interest to, to not get into a nuclear arms race. Well, thank you, Anel. Thank you uh, very much, my, my colleagues here. And I think now is a good time to go back to Becky to moderate the questions from, from the audience. All right. So we have some interesting kind of pinpointed questions. And I'll start with you, Dr. Tsim. One question from, and I apologize for my pronunciation of your name, Juan. I'm trying to get the rest of the name. It's not showing up. Aris Mendy. How does cryptocurrency, he asks, currency markets evolution and their lack of regulation has played a role in the capacity of Iran to trade? And in which measure do you think that has affected the implementation of sanctions and security surveillance? So I guess it's mostly yeah. regarding the cryptocurrency markets evolution. Well, I'm afraid I'm not an expert on crypto issues or cryptocurrency. And yes, there, were, there have been many, many reports about this uh, cryptocurrency, which makes Iran more easy to, to gain some advantages. But I have to say that with all due respect to this issue, I think that the, the best way Iran has been dealing with the sanctions is not through this kind of cryptocurrency, but uh, more by trying to diversify its mm -hmm. economy, both when it comes to, to choosing partners who are less vulnerable to US sanctions. It used to be until a few months ago. So I think, yes, the cryptocurrency is perhaps part of the solution, but uh, there are other ways if we run to, 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 to have this kind of resilient economy to deal with the sanctions. Do any of our other distinguished panelists 
Thanks, Anil. Yeah. I'm also not an expert on cryptocurrency, so I, I won't be able to speak as much to that. But I, I do think the question does get to an important issue, which is the, the in, in my view, the over-reliance of the United States on sanctions. Mm -hmm. I think in the context of sort of general American frustration with a, lo a lot of military interventions, especially after 9-11, Americans are, are pretty sick of, of sending, you know, spending blood and treasure on, on sending our military abroad. And as a result, even, even sort of less hawkish members of the foreign policy establishment have turned to sanctions as sort of this alternative way of, of trying to impose U.S. objectives on the rest of the world. And, and as a result, we do see especially countries like Iran, but as well as China and Russia um, and other countries, Venezuela, trying to find ways around American sanctions. And this, this is understandable from their perspective that, that the U.S. Is, is imposing them and they are suffering as a result. I mean, we, we know that sanctions in general hurt the population far more than they hurt the rulers and do tend to, in fact, reinforce support for even autocratic and unpopular rulers. And, and so in general, I, I think the United States needs to be very cautious about this over-reliance on sanctions because it is undermining the world's reliance on the, the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. And so, so, again, this doesn't necessarily get to the question of cryptocurrency, but it does get to the ways that the U.S. continues to try to sort of impose its agenda on the world and how that can have, that can sort of backfire in unintended ways. Sure. Yeah, well, sanctions without diplomacy isn't going to necessarily yield what we want, but thank you. Does anybody else want to comment on that? Any of the other panelists? Otherwise, I'll, there's another uh, question regarding when the U.S. signs another modified or goes back to the GCPOA, Iran, or when, when Iran signed the GCP, when you at the U.S., sorry, signed the GCPOA, Iran started shelling Pakistani areas on the border on a daily basis, what would be the impact of a, a nuclear deal revival on Pakistan? Uh, yeah, well, I, guess, Raz. Uh, well, yeah I, I think we should not, uh, uh, we, we should try not to put everything on the JCPOA. I mean, as an Israeli, people uh, usually ask me, uh, do you think that, the J, the, that if uh, the US returns to the JCPOA, this will mean that Iran will, Iran will increase its entrenchment in Syria or its support for Hezbollah? And I have to remind everyone that Iran's support for Hezbollah and the pro-Iranian militias in Iraq and Syria started way before the JCPOA. So yes, you might perhaps say that they might have more more money to to invest in in the regional policy, but 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 I think that the the, the money was never the problem. So I think that when, when it comes to the uh, relations between Iran and Pakistan and the, all those exchange of fightings in the border in Sistan Baluchistan, I'm not sure it has anything to do with the JCPOA. It has to do with other issues concerning the. The, 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 problem, the problems of drugs and, and the, the problems of, of, of all those groups, Baluchi groups act, acting there. I, I don't really think that the JCPOA will have this, this impact on, on this issue. So Surab Sharma asks, with oil prices being low, Gulf countries are taking a hit from for quite some time if i were saudi arabia uae etc i would like to stir up tensions to keep oil prices higher do you agree so i would go with our gcc wonks maybe uh christian would you like to start 
Well, I mean, oil prices are much higher today than they were a year ago. They're also much higher today than I think most experts had predicted they would be mm -hmm. at this stage when we're still in the middle of the pandemic and in the midst of lockdowns across much of the world. So I think from a Saudi perspective, they would like to see oil prices at between 70 and $75 a barrel. Mm -hmm. I think they consider that a sweet spot between the needs of consumer and producing nations. And to be quite honest, they're almost there right now. I guess the issue of fermenting or deliberately stoking instability to drive prices up, it might do so in the short term, but the longer term price dynamic is something they can't necessarily control. So it might give it a short term bounce. I think we saw the least, most recent OPEC plus meeting, the decision to restrain production for at least another few months, an attempt to try and manage oil oil markets to produce a sweet spot. And I think, to be honest, that's what the Saudi leadership in partnership with Russia, although there are some tensions of trying to achieve at least in the next few months until perhaps we know more about whether or not there will be any form of agreement with Iran or whether there will be some sort of uh, escalation in regional tension, which might then create its own price spike further down the line. Sebastian, would, would you like to add anything to that or? I don't know if you can hear me. I think he froze again. Okay. There is a question for Sebastian, but I don't know if he can hear me. Let's see if I can get to him. No, all right. All right, we'll save that one. Let's see if there's another one. How much time, Adam, how much time uh, do we have left? We could go for another 10 minutes. If there Another? are 10 minutes. 10 minutes, okay. Yeah, we have you know, some slightly longer questions, that's, that's good, but I think that 10, 10 minutes should be enough to, to wrap things up here. Yeah, there was that, okay. Is, is Dr. Sons back? I think he is. Sebastian, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I was, I was kicked out again, sorry. No worries. Uh, so we have a question specifically for you from uh, Fatima. We have we have seen closer Omani-Saudi talks in recent weeks, and the U.S. seems to favor such a regional regional combo to approach the war in Yemen. Do you see the two countries uh, can also work together on the in the on the Iranian matter? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me, Becky? Yes, sir. Okay, great. Yeah, regarding regarding the, the okay, I will try my best. The talks between Saudi Arabia and Oman on Yemen. Yes, I've seen the question. So it's, oh, okay. it's Oman and Saudi, right? The talks between Oman yes, and yes. Saudi. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I think of course for Saudi Arabia it's it's quite relevant to to engage with Oman on on Yemen. Both have in, have in security interest in Yemen that the that the situation um, will improve uh, quite soon. My I don't I, I don't really know if if Oman is really capable in, in making a difference with regards to the Houthis. So at least from my understanding, there there are some contacts and there have been talks. Maybe there are also some. Uh, 
better established contacts between Oman and the Houthis than between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. But in general, I think there there's there's much more the Saudi Arabia needs to do. And and at the moment, it's it seems that that the Houthis are not really willing um, to to engage and to negotiate because they they see themselves in a the, in the very strong military position. And in this regard, uh, what I heard fr from Yemen, also from my from my Saudi colleagues, of course, they are frustrated, and and it's uh, it's very difficult at the moment to uh, to achieve to achieve compromise or at least agree on a on a ceasefire with with the Saudis uh, with the Houthis, because also the Houthis these are not a monolithic block. There are mm -hmm. several factions, and some of them are maybe a little bit more in favor of, of finding a compromise and, and having negotiations, real negotiations, and the others are more in favor of, of military solution. So in this regard, to for Saudi Arabia, it's important to talk with Oman. It's also important to, to, con, to continue talking and, and engaging with the UAE in order to, to have at least leverage on the Houthis. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really difficult. And what I, how I see it at the moment is that Saudi Arabia is not anymore. We lost you, Sebastian. Very much interested in a comprehensive solution in Yemen. It's more, it's more interesting about defending its own borders. We keep losing you, uh, Sebastian, so I, we couldn't really hear the last part. Maybe oh, okay. We'll... So, yeah, please. I, I was finished, so therefore maybe, yeah. I was just saying that, that Saudi Arabia is, is focusing and prioritizing more defending its borders than finding a comprehensive solution inside Yemen, because at the moment they are struggling on a daily basis with such attacks mm -hmm. coming from Houthis. And that is their top priority. And of course, they are they are lacking leverage. They are therefore, as we as we discussed before, indirectly or directly approaching Iran in order to <clears throat> to better control the Houthis, stopping launching attacks on on Saudi soil, or at least also agree on a ceasefire could be one part of the of the Saudi consideration. Thank you. Yeah. So this next question from uh, Ross Harris. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Just super quickly, I, I think the, I definitely agree with Sebastian's point that the situation in Yemen is obviously hugely difficult. One thing to consider, I, I do think the Omanis do have a close relationship with the Houthis, certainly than the Saudis do, but also in one of the earlier wars fought between the Houthis and the, the Yemeni government in the early 2000s, Qatar was influential in, in achieving one of the ceasefires. And so although that's you know, situations have, have changed and it's unclear necessarily to what extent Qatar would be willing or able to do that again. I do think that that perhaps it would be useful to, to think about their possible influence. Although again, I think that may have been spoiled somewhat because the Saudis were unwilling to have Qatar sort of develop a larger role partnering with the Houthis. But to get just back to the question of whether Oman could play a role with Iran, this is what happened in leading to the JCPOA. This it was the role of Oman that helped to sort of foster the back channel negotiations that eventually resulted in the Iran deal. However, that was partly predicated on the some the, the relatively close relationship between Secretary of State John Kerry and Sultan Qaboos, who passed away last year. And so it's, it's not yet clear necessarily that Sultan Haitham has the same sort of relationship with with key individuals, whether in the Biden administration or, or elsewhere in the region, 
that Oman could necessarily play that role again, but inshallah, it, it, it could be possible. I agree. So this, maybe this would be the last question. It kind of gives a different perspective. The, the question has to do with, so it's the American side, how can Biden anchor the nuclear deal if the U.S. and Iran do a return or to a modified JCPOA to better, to, to anchor the deal better politically in Washington to avoid future administration walking away again. So yes, from an American perspective, that would have to do with the workings of Congress, et cetera, but maybe our panelists can give a take, you know, their take on from the, the Gulf, the Iran, et cetera, perspective. How, how could we anchor this better so, you know, the U.S. can't just walk away again? Well, I think that Anel could understand the domestic politics in the U.S. better than, than me, but what, what I can say is that this is certainly a big concern for Iran. And when you hear Khamenei saying that perhaps we should neutralize the sanctions rather than remove the sanctions, that is part of the, this, uh, what I uh, referred to earlier as the wall of uh, mistrust. And mm -hmm. he really doesn't believe that uh, he can uh, build his economy on the perception that any kind of uh, do the same. And I have to say that it's not just a matter of uh, what will happen if a Republican is elected as president. But when you hear uh, Biden administration saying again and again that even if we remove the sanctions, if Iran is not going to be ready to go back to negotiations over a longer and uh, better JCPOA in a matter of a year or two years, we will reimpose sanctions, that gives the Iranian the, uh, the, the sense that uh, why should we go back to the JCPOA? Why, why we should bother to have a sanctioned relief if no one can guarantee that this situation will, uh, will continue forever? Any of our other, and, and, and Al, would you like to take a stab at it? Sure, yeah, just quickly, I know we're almost out of time. I, I think this is, you know, as, as Raz mentioned, this is clearly a concern for Iran. And, I, you know, I think also perhaps a, a concern on the American side, knowing that, that the JCPOA was ultimately simply dependent on the Obama administration, so that moving forward for it to be more durable, it would need to come from Congress and, and mm -hmm. to be enacted legislation that would, would be more difficult to overturn than simply a, a new administration coming to power. And I think in general, part of part of the issue with the Iran deal was it was it did not address sort of the fundamental U.S. role in the region within which countries like Saudi Arabia, Israel and the UAE, their their circumstances were unchanged. And so from their perspective, they still had the, the full backing and support of the of the United States. And they weren't necessarily that interested in, in sort of preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon because they felt they could still rely entirely or substantially on the fact that the U.S. continued to maintain a large military presence and continued to sell inordinate amounts of weapons. And so moving forward, I think to actually shift the status quo in the region, it would require the United States to have a, a smaller footprint so that these countries would feel that it is, in fact, in their own best interests to, to not get into uh, a situation of escalating tension or outright war with Iran. And again, that, that, that will only be possible if they don't feel they can simply fall back on the United States to protect could I actually ask a question in response to what Anel just said? Is this, how is this different, uh, at least in principle, from President Obama's doctrine of leading from behind, which was then considered to be a readjustment of the U.S. Uh, role in the Middle East? What, what do you just propose right, right now? 
I mean, I think unfortunately we saw leading from behind didn't necessarily lead to good outcomes either. You know, for example, that was used in, in the US role in Libya, which where again, we, we've seen pretty awful outcomes. And, and so in general, I, I think the United States moving forward, I mean, partly as an American, we, we all need to develop a clear eyed understanding that the world is multipolar at this point in the United States is no longer uh, going moving forward, um, going to be sort of the, the unipolar actor who can impose its will on the world. And we are going to have to get more accustomed to sort of cooperation and partnership and diplomacy. And so again, just I think this notion of kind of leading from behind was, was still coming from an attitude of a, a preference for and an assumption of American supremacy. Okay. And moving forward, if the United States continues to, to maintain this, it will simply continue to sort of fritter away resources while American quality of life and American diplomacy or American democracy truly suffers here at home. So you're talking about mm -hmm. something which is in a sense, leading from behind, but from a position of the U.S. being a more of an equal power, not a hegemon in the U.S. already, if I understand it correctly. Yes, and not so much American leadership, that moving forward, the United States has much more limited interests in the Middle East, both as a result of, of no longer being dependent on petroleum, but, but also just acknowledging the, uh, that, that Israel, for example, now has much closer relationships with, with several Arab states and so no longer needs this sort of overwhelming U.S. military support. So, so moving forward, the U.S. Uh, simply does not have as much of an interest in being as involved in the Middle East in general as a leader or, you know, a security guarantor. Thank you. Can I just finally, finally add about the question about what could the U.S. do to try to strengthen the agreement or to anchor the agreement? Because obviously there's a lack of trust. Why would Iran or anyone else trust that a future president who might share a lack of appreciation of the deal not be withdrawn. And that goes to the part of the problem mm -hmm. that the JCPOA was not a Senate ratified treaty. But to do that, you would need 67 votes in the Senate, which just politically speaking is impossible. It was impossible for Obama, it was impossible for, it would be impossible for Biden. Because what we saw was that the JCPOA was classed as a non-binding political commitment, which is very different and much easier for Trump to simply withdraw from. We saw that also with the Paris Climate Change Accord. That was an executive agreement. And again, not having the protection, the political protection of a treaty made it very easy for a successor administration to withdraw. Unlike, for example, in 1992, when the George H.W. Bush administration actually got the Senate to ratify the, the Rio Climate Change Agreement of 1992, that actually had protection. So that's what they could do to try and anchor and give political protection to the agreement. But I think we all know that politically, it's almost impossible to imagine any form of bipartisan support sufficient to get 67 votes in support of, of the agreement. So I think politically, it's almost impossible. Okay. I think unless uh, Sebastian, you'd like to add something, maybe from the KSA perspective or any of the other GCC countries. Yeah, thank you. No, I just wanted to add uh, something from the European perspective because at the moment, uh, or during our discussion, we did not really tackle Europe, and and this is of course also a very relevant player when it comes to reviving the JCPOA, when it comes also to 
to confidence uh, building measures in the region. So, of course, we know that, uh, that Europe is, is not united. The European Union has, Union has its own problems. For us, Germany, they have sometimes also contradicting positions when it comes to the Gulf, when it comes to the, to the whole region. There is sometimes also a lack of strategy in, in, in some of the member states of the European Union. But in principle, I think today is, is, is a momentum, maybe also a historic momentum for Europe to engage more and, and to foster exactly the values and the ideas that Europe stands for, which is, of course, regional integration, which is um, uh, common understanding. Uh, and, and nowadays, nowadays taking into consideration that the U.S. is not is, is, is fostering retrenchment from the region, there is a need also for Europe. And when you talk to, to specific interlocutors in, in the Arab Gulf states, they, they are to some extent disappointed by Europe that there was not a, a stronger engagement in the past, but they also still have hope that, that it could be intensified in the future. And I think that is also on our side, on the European side, to, to show no that we can also have an added value in, in order to fostering regional integration and, and at least exchange. And, and this role can be played by, by the European Union as an institution that can also play, can be played by, by specific member states. And I was just, I wanted just to, to, to raise also the, that, that Europe is not completely irrelevant uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to the region and of course not when it comes to the JCPOA. Mm-hmm. I think we're almost out of time. We're out of time. Yeah, I, I did want to ask, yeah, please. Uh, one one question directed at uh, Raz, just because we're kind of like pussyfooting around what what I'm taking as the main drawbacks of the GCPOA, <laughs> if we're if we're going to go back to them. So if if Raz could explain, I, I believe you wrote or co-wrote an article in December about the delusion, the shleya, the delusion of the all-encompassing or multi-track record. Accord, and so, what what did you mean by that, and how could that, if if we understand that, how could that contribute to efforts to going back to a version of a GCPOA? Well, I think you relate to you relate to something I wrote about the possibility of addressing the regional issue as part of the JCPOA, and my view has been always. And I think that that's been that uh, that's been the Israeli traditional position that the nuclear issue is too important, especially for Israel, to let other issues taken to be taken hostage by other issues. And mm-hmm. I think that, uh, the, uh, as I said before, there are things which could be done to try and deal with Iranian regional activity and influence. I think that we have to realize that Iran is here to stay. Iran is, is certainly a regional power and has to, and, and one has to take into consideration its interests as well. But I think that even if we want to address Iran's regional policy, especially when it comes to, to Israeli concerns, mainly in Syria and Lebanon and Gaza, then it should not be addressed through the JCPOA. The, J, the, the, the Israeli traditional position has always been the international community should address the nuclear issue because that's too big for Israel to address by its own. When it comes to the missiles and to the regional issue, there are other ways to deal with Iran, not just the, through the JCPOA. And, and when, it come, when it comes to the JCPOA, I, I think that it won't be easy to go back there. Again, I, I still don't believe that if Biden is ready to remove sanctions 
uh, Iran will say will refuse to do that. I think the main issue when it comes to Iran is the removal of the sanctions. But I think that as time passes uh, and as there is a sense in Iran that there is actually no difference between Trump and Biden when it comes to the maximum pressure policy, uh, and as we are uh, facing in, in less than three months the presidential elections, and yes, Khamenei is the supreme leader, and if he makes the decision, the president will have to abide. But I think it will be very different to carry to 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 have negotiations between the U.S. and Iran with someone like Zarif rather than someone like Saeed Jalili or a president. I'm afraid it, it's going to be much more complicated to uh, to reach to reach an understanding with with, with a president like uh, Raisi or even Ghalibaf uh, or even Larry Johnny. Thank you. So, Adam, uh, I think that's all she got. <clears throat> Thank you oh, very much for moderating the Q&A. We are already uh, out of time, but I would like to, to, to ask Anel, Christian, and Sebastian if you have any kind of uh, final comments to wrap up this fascinating discussion, at least uh, for me personally. So if there's anything you'd like to say, which is maybe you know a bit uh, a bit of a change compared to where we started this discussion uh, over an hour ago. If there's anything you think uh, should be added from the uh, U.S., Iranian, Saudi, or Emirati or other Gulfi context, which you think uh, complements this uh, the picture that we just had here during this discussion. Anel, Christian, Sebastian, do you like to like to respond to that? Anel, can we start with you? If you have anything to add. Um, nothing to add. I actually do have to hop off uh, okay. now. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to yeah, thank well, It's a bit over time, so I completely understand. Thank you so much for your participation. Thank you. Thank um, you. Christian, do you want to add, add anything here? Just briefly to say that I think as has come out in this discussion, the lack of trust on all sides, the fact that domestic politics on all sides will play into everything, that there's no easy interlocutor one-on-one, -on -one, that the U.S. has domestic politics, Iran has domestic politics, and also the regional dimension as well will all kind of intersect. And to be honest, if you ask me, I think it's almost impossible to imagine that any new form of a JCPOA can be reached just because the positions are so diametrically opposed. You know, Iran does not want a new agreement. The Biden administration says it wants an expanded and strengthened one. And right now, at least, I just don't see any willingness or capacity to bridge that gap, not least because both parties have that domestic constituency to try and kind of bear with. So, yeah, that's my, my, my summing up. So if I, if I maybe refer to what you just said, uh, it's not all about the U.S. You know, it, it's, you know there, there might be a great difference between Trump and Biden when it comes to the Middle East and Iran, but it's not only what the U.S. does or doesn't do, which will affect the feasibility of uh, JCPOA 2.0. And to be honest, I've been surprised that the Biden administration hasn't actually done more to re-enter, if, if only just because all the key figures who were instrumental in negotiating the JCPOA are now back in government at actually higher positions. And yep. so, I mean, that's people like uh, Jake Sullivan, who is now National Security Advisor, Anthony Blinken, who is now Secretary of State, and also Bill Burns, who was instrumental in the Together with Jake Sullivan, they were the two who actually were negotiating in Oman in 2012-2013, and he's now incoming as CIA director. So you have the same people back in positions of power, or at least in office, at higher positions, but we still haven't seen that shift. 
And so I, I've been, to be honest, I have been surprised that we haven't had, we haven't yet had that. Thank you, uh, Sebastian. Would like to, to add any fun comments to this discussion? Yeah, thank you again. Despite the fact that that revive, reviving the JCPA will be, of course, quite a mess and it will be very difficult, I would try to rather close with a more optimistic outlook, so to say. So when it comes to like joint challenges and problems the region is facing, there are no big differences between the Gulf states and Iran. So there is an overarching understanding that needs to be that that uh, climate change, environmental issues, unemployment drug trafficking, human trafficking, etc. The implications of COVID-19, they, they need to be tackled uh, sooner or later with or without a JCPOA. And hopefully there will, be, there will come like a window of opportunity where, where there will be uh, people on both sides who, who really think about those concerns, uh, which are mutual concerns. And, uh, and therefore, I think specifically when I, when I look, for instance, into one project I was involved in that is still going on, which is organized by a German think tank, Carpo and the Gulf Research Center, which is called Tafaum, funded by the Federal Foreign Office. That brings exactly together people from, from the region, from Iran, from the Gulf states, in order to discuss specific topics of joint interest, such as entrepreneurship, such as migration issues, such as social engagement, etc., and of course, there is there is an understanding, a common understanding, in all of those participants that that all those challenges can only be addressed together. I know that sounds naive at the moment, and I don't. And I, I, of course, I see all the obstacles, but on a people-to-people level, there is there is still some there is still some hope and and, and at the end of the tunnel, uh, light at the end of the tunnel. And I think in this regard, also Europe can can play can play um, a, a much a much bigger, much more influential role. So thank you for this much more optimistic note to this entire discussion. Uh, I would like to thank our participants, anyone and uh, all of the uh, audience who has uh, stuck with us so far, even after you know overstepping time limit for this uh, webinar. So thank you again for this uh, fascinating discussion. I think it was really interesting to to see the various European and American perspectives on uh, these uh, issues, and also the Iranian via uh, Raz speaking from Tel Aviv to see how Iran might uh, look at these issues. I would like just, just to uh, remind everyone again that next month we will be running a simulation on the Iran uh, nuclear agreement. Uh, so we'll follow that, follow that up with some details later on, but just to keep in mind. And thank you again, everyone who has participated in this discussion, in this event, and we look forward to seeing you also again in our future events. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.